just need to forget about everything. Put away our problems. Get along with each other. Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring all the unexplained mysteries of existence, as well as fringe knowledge, and everything cryptic, dark, and weird in the world. Today on the show, we're going to continue our journey into exploring lore on the Nephilim, and this time we finally got to Atlantis lore, which is actually pretty sprawling and vast knowledge concerning these ineffable beings. I know I've been gone a while and sorry about that, but I've had some pretty, uh, had some issues and some things I had to take care of and some, you know, life. And I'm not going to bore you with personal stuff. So sorry for the long break. I'm back and let's get back into it, shall we? It's time to get weird. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Should we begin with the more conspiratorial stuff first? Or should we kind of ease into it? If you're one of my Patreon supporters and listen to the exclusive episode on advanced ancient civilizations, then you're very aware of my lifelong fascination with Atlantis. In fact, even as a kid, when I first came across it, it almost seemed kind of familiar to me. And I've just really found the whole idea behind it and all the mysteries surrounding it incredibly engaging throughout my life. There's actually very little I hadn't heard about Atlantis myths, or at least so I thought. When I was researching for these Nephilim and Watcher episodes, I actually came across some new material that was unfamiliar to me, and it was a pleasant surprise. The geological evidence to support a cataclysm around 12 to 13,000 years ago is pretty compelling. And the Great Flood did indeed happen as the ice caps melted at the end of Earth's last ice age. And then with civilizations like the advanced ones that built Gobekli Tepe, Egypt, Sumeria, and all these highly advanced and sophisticated civilizations at the dawn of human history are not as easily explainable away as the mainstream masses may think. Even the Sphinx has rain damage on it, with rain in the area only occurring probably around 10 to 13,000 years ago. But the world isn't ready for that conversation. People really who, I mean, people who don't really agree with this stuff, even though there's tons of evidence to back it up, if they ever thought about it all and like put together all the evidence in an objective way that their confirmation bias didn't hinder them from seeing objectively, they'd see that there's flood myths found all over the world from ancient civilizations, and they all share a common theme of otherworldly beings existing among humans prior to that flood. The antediluvian world is what it's called. Old Earth. 
and all of these flood myths from cultures around the world that never contacted each other or had any engagement, they all share the same themes, which is quite bizarre and unexplainable. One more important thing to remember, too, is that when people talk about Atlantis, especially specifically the Atlantis researchers, they're not necessarily talking about the Atlantis that comes from ancient Greece. Atlantis is really just a word to describe something, which is a civilization that was advanced and thriving prehistory. Doesn't necessarily mean that its name was Atlantis. Could have been called who knows what, a language dead long before we rediscovered how to use tools or whatever. I'm sure you get my drift. So when I talk about Atlantis, I'm not talking about the Atlantis, but just an unknown lost civilization that disappeared and is unknown to us, though there's much evidence that it existed. Thanks to Graham Hancock, among many others, we have a plausible narrative to wrap around these theories. With a common Atlantis myth theory being that these early civilizations were either ruled by Atlantis prior to the deluge, or were outposts, or were even settled by the survivors of the destruction of the continent once their uh, civilization ended. With all of these highly advanced ancient civilizations at the dawn of human history, like Sumeria and Egypt being, or actually Mesoamerica too, but these highly advanced civilizations being remnants of the survivors of Atlantis, teaching the primitive humans in the area about their once grand culture and passing on technology, information, knowledge to people who were pretty unfamiliar with such things. Humans at that time were most likely just hunter-gatherers, with the Atlantis civilization being the exception. This is often used as a scapegoat to explain a way like the advanced knowledge these ancients seemed to have with technology that wasn't rivaled up to the modern age, or the Renaissance, I mean. Though, personally, I would argue that the peak of the Roman Empire and Islamic empires, and the Chinese Empire in particular, were also peaks of advancement. This scapegoat is too easy of a solution, and there's not really there's not really evidence to back it up, but I'll go over why people think this. Remember, we're talking about Atlantis. There's very little evidence. It's just too easy of a cop-out, no evidence to support it, and no matter what we do or what we think, until there's a, a big, big, bigger find that explains a lot of our lost ancient past that the mainstream masses will be open to, then... Until then, it's just, it's just most likely always going to be a mystery. Because it would have to be such a, a big find that it couldn't be suppressed, and it would have to be objective enough for the archaeological and scientific communities to accept. I'd like to think that some of those societies did exist pre-flood, especially Egypt, and just had survivors and slowly recovered from the cataclysm. As I mentioned, the Sphinx has water damage on it, and I've seen enough evidence to think that it's way older than we think. And people, especially Egyptologists, will fight against that theory tooth and nail. They don't even allow research in archaeology in Egypt anymore other than themselves. Because there's just too much being discovered that goes against the narrative. But the truth... Well, no. Reason and logic. 
suggests that there is vastly more we don't know about these ancient civilizations than we do know. These early civilizations were more advanced than any civilization that came after throughout history, basically all through time for the most part. Many of their architectural achievements would even be difficult to replicate with our modern technology in many cases, and in a lot of other cases, impossible to replicate. There's many structures with laser-like mathematical accuracy and precision that you can't even slide a, a razor blade between the masonry. And there's other buildings that seem to have like melted, like melted stone fused together in bizarre ways that we'd have no idea how it was made or how it was done. And if you think about it enough, well, at least if you're me, you ask yourself, is there a forgotten golden age of humans? Maybe not. Maybe so. Ineffable things can never be proven. But what is clear is that we don't know nearly as much about our own story as humans as we'd like to think we do. And there is definitely something missing. Another common mythical theme that goes along with all of these ancient civilizations is the theme that there was an interbreeding of humans and a non-human race to create some sort of hybrid. The Hebrew calling these entities watchers and their offspring, the Nephilim. But as I've already gone over in prior episodes, these Nephilim tales are not unique to the Bible in the slightest. The land of Canaan in which the Hebrews came from was heavily influenced by its much more powerful and older neighbors with each one of these cultures too having similar lore and in Mesopotamia a unified culture as well. There's really nothing in the Bible that can't be found in lore in the surrounding area, and that includes Egypt. You'll find many Christian similarities in Egypt as well, with many passages in the Bible seemingly straight up ripped off from the Egyptian wisdom traditions. In what is modern-day Iraq and Iran, Many ancient tablets were discovered that exist even now that litter museums across the world. The land of Sumer, the Sumerians, Earth's earliest accepted human civilization in the mainstream, is actually one of the most recent archaeological finds that kind of shook the world. I have a history book that I inherited from my great-grandfather called Wonders of the Past, and it dates back to the 50s before all of this stuff was really a thing. And what's odd about this old history book is that none of the Sumerian stuff is in it. They, a lot of the Sumerian stuff that is associated with them in modern archaeology is just vaguely given attribution to Akkadians or Assyrians or basically all the wrong people. So it hasn't really been that long since we've had this information. My great-grandfather was very successful and uh, incredibly interested in all this kind of stuff, and I'm happy to pick up where he left off, though I am not a Freemason like he was. And I really enjoy researching his life and looking into all the cryptic things he said and did. But one of the main things that I find fascinating about the Sumerians is that their language is unlike any other on Earth. It's called cuneiform, and it's incredibly nuanced and sophisticated as any modern one. 
And yes, if you were wondering, these are the same tablets that were discovered that Zachariah Sitchin uh, translated in a very abstract and interesting way. These tablets kind of speak of beings with advanced knowledge and abilities that made them appear godlike and were indeed the gods of the Sumerians and the demigods, the, uh, the offspring of these gods, would go on to rule the city-states of Sumeria, Babylon, and many future kingdoms. Anywhere these hybrids went, grew an empire. The perfect summary of the Nephilim and Watchers from the Books of Enoch. Well, not perfect, but analogous. And obviously, the source material for the Bible. But just where did these demigods come from? Well, depending on who you ask, they were the survivors of the Flood from a lost civilization. And this is where things get weird. <laughs> Weirder, I mean, because the lore surrounding Atlantis and the Nephilim is very contradictory and often in opposition to itself, but I'm sure you're used to that by now. Uh, tons of this Nephilim lore is just constantly contradicting itself. In any case, this brings up the first segment of uh, who I want to go over, their view of Atlantis, and that is Michael Sarian. In the book, Atlantis Alien Visitation and Genetic Manipulation, researcher Michael Sarian has come to quite controversial conclusions. I've followed Mr. Sarian for years and will be honest in saying that you should take a lot of what he says with a grain of salt, but he's also very intelligent and has a lot of insight. But he also trips a lot of people out and I actually stopped following him for a while just because his stuff was so depressing. It was only that I, after some inner work that I could come back later and appreciate his material better. And now that I'm not so naive, I am not as tripped out by the stuff he says for the most part, but he still says some pretty trippy stuff. I love his work on ancient Irish lore. The myth behind Ireland is actually far older than we think and actually inspired a lot of other mythology in Europe. The book itself is very in-depth and well-researched, though I disagree on a lot of Michael's points of view. He's a very dedicated researcher and I honestly believe that he attempts to give truth to the best of his ability and there's no hidden agenda behind him. But let's just be real, no one's got the facts, and when they say that they do, it kinda... throws some red flags for me. However, much of his material is objective fact and should be taken very seriously. And I have no doubt that he has a deeper understanding of how the world actually works. But with me, it always comes back down to his work on Irish myth that really draws me in because I just love Irish myth. The fate of Ireland has been pretty tragic and it's a shame with all the oppression and suppression aimed against them throughout history that they really haven't had a chance to shine because they're up there with any of the greats. And damn, do they get some pretty fascinating mythology linked back to Atlantis, complete with their own set of gods and demigods. In the annals of Irish mythology, there's the Tuaha de Danan, a people from an advanced civilization. So much so that when their king Nuada lost his hand in battle, Criaden the artificer, we are told, put a silver hand upon him, the fingers of which were capable of motion. Which sounds kind of sci-fi, 
this great race ruled the country for 197 years. These Tuaha de Danan are the inspiration for elf folklore across Europe, including Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. The legend of the Tuaha de Danan tells us that as the floodwaters from the cataclysm subsided, the Tuaha de Danan ships stood upon the Hill of Terra in Ireland, whereupon they built their magnificent city of wood, ivory, and bronze. According to Michael Sarian, among many other researchers, these beings are believed to come from Atlantis, fleeing from their destroyed original homeland, their continent sinking beneath the waters after the ice caps melted, and being the original, or some of the original gods of Ireland. In many accounts, they're even referred to as the ever-popular term for the Nephilim, giants. They were larger and stronger than normal humans, and had such highly advanced tech, it was considered magic. They could also access an alternate realm in Ireland only available to them like a pocket dimension called City, which led to fairy folklore or... Hold on, let me fact check really quick. Yes, so the pocket dimension called Sidhi led to fairy folklore of the mounds in the alternate realms of reality the mystical entities dwelled in, and humans could be abducted into or even accidentally stumble into. Fairy folklore is pretty awesome, we'll get into that soon enough. But um, ancient alien people also sit like to uh, have their opinion in on this, and they say that Sidhi was an alien spaceship that hovered above Ireland. Irish legend says that the Tuaha de Danan came from the four northern islands of Hyperborea, to which, if you're someone who loves myth and cryptic occult lore, or even H.P. Lovecraft, then that should sound very familiar to you. Hyperborea was said to have been conquered by Atlantis, and so was part of its empire, making the Tuaha de Danan Atlanteans. But then again, other tales from different cultures say that Hyperborea was the etheric realm of Atlantis. In the same spot, but like a different dimension, where only some Atlanteans could go. Which probably coincides with astral plane lore. But in any case, in all the lore, their islands once called home are now beneath the sea, just like Atlantis. So they're interchangeable. Hyperborea is also known in Egyptian texts, which is fascinating, and tell of the same fate in Irish lore. And there's actually other interesting Egyptian connections, but I won't get into that just yet. Michael Sarian brings an interesting spin in his book Atlantis Alien Visitation and Genetic Manipulation. It has a very unique and horrifying perspective on Atlantis concerning the Nephilim and the Watchers. And, uh, so in... In the book, the Watchers are not gods or angels, but straight-up space aliens. The Watchers, as he calls them, were trying to escape pursuers in space that were intent on annihilating them. Just who these pursuers were, the book doesn't claim to know. They could have been another faction of Watchers or whoever. They could have been good or evil or who knows. But all they cared about was killing the sh 
out of the watchers to the point of fanaticism willing to go to great extremes to ensure the destruction of these aliens and it's when the chase came into our solar system that stuff really started to heat up now supposedly well actually in real science there is mathematically a planet missing in our solar system that some believe turned into the asteroid belt and according to Michael Sarian's research, these watchers used their technology to fool their pursuers that they had landed on this missing planet, the planet of Tiamat. And in their quest to exterminate them, these aliens pursuing the watchers completely blew up this planet. That's how much they hated these guys. Just thinking that they were on it and boom, Death Star. And as we'll soon find out, these watchers are total dicks and probably deserve to be wiped out. However, since the Watchers weren't on Tiamat, it was all just a ruse, they survived the attack. They were actually hiding in cave systems that they made, deep beneath Earth's crust. The destruction of Tiamat had horrible consequences for the solar system though, because there was a, a system-wide cataclysm. Not just Earth, but every planet had a, a massive shakeup. And at this point, the aliens that were pursuing the Watchers took off because they thought that they'd accomplished their mission. They thought the Watchers were dead, but really they had just began to alter the fate of our solar system. Michael says that the planet of Tiamat was an all-water planet and caused flooding on Earth. In earlier times, Earth didn't even have half the water it has now and got its abundance of water from the planet Tiamat after its destruction. But don't get confused, this isn't the flood myth cataclysm that comes later. Humans at this time were homo sapien hunter-gatherers and highly primitive. But eventually when all of the global chaos started to calm down and it was eventually safe to leave their underground fortresses, the Watchers realized that they were stuck on the planet from the cosmic destruction in the solar system caused by the pursuing aliens trying to wipe them out. Essentially, space travel at this point in time in the solar system would be suicide. So they had to bunker down for a while and uh, a while as in centuries. The destruction was so absolute that they kinda just had to adopt Earth as a temporary home in which they wasted no time in exploring it for resources. And we'll get right back to Michael Sarian's book, Atlantis, Alien Visitation and Genetic Manipulation, after a short break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of Cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. 
By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. And the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. David Icke says that these aliens were lizard people, but Michael Sarian says that they looked very similar to humans, though larger and far more evolved. But they were also evil and didn't care about the natural world around them or the natural evolution of its native inhabitants, humans. The Watchers were pretty small in numbers, all things concerned, and also thought menial labor beneath them. But if they were going to be staying on Earth for a while, they might as well make it comfortable. So they began scouring the Earth for resources. Humans just being another resource to exploit. Yet according to Michael Sarian's book, it's a, a massive taboo to alter the natural development of evolving sentient species in the galaxy. So much so that it could actually cause war with other interstellar civilizations. He says that's why aliens don't really contact us now openly, but these watchers took a large group of our ancestors and altered them with their own DNA to create slaves. So humans instantly went pretty much from primitive hunter-gatherers to having highly advanced brains and a very self-aware consciousness. And according to Michael Sarian's research, these experiments were pretty horrific with babies bursting out of human mothers' stomachs analogous to the alien movies, or the Watcher babies just dying within the womb. But after a bunch of crazy stuff like that, they eventually just settled on DNA manipulation alone. These experiments were the stuff of nightmares, and I can't go into too much detail because I don't want to kind of freak people out, though eventually they did have their functioning slave race. But these humans were not the humans that are around today. They would be more superhuman to us in modern times. And for a time, this worked out for the Watchers. But their Nephilim had full sentient awareness and free will. It was only a matter of time before they rebelled. But before they did so, they assisted their masters in creating the city of Atlantis. And in case you just missed that, humans are Nephilim from this lore and research. And this city of Atlantis was a highly advanced technological city because of course the aliens had all kinds of crazy advanced tech. However, they were still kind of stranded there and eventually when they thought that it was safe to uh, try and leave Earth and go back home, they packed up and tried to ditch the planet but found out that they were unable to leave. The aliens that had pursued them and destroyed the planet Tiamat had apparently come back just in case any of them survived. 
And instead of just blowing up planets right and left, they decided to take a more tactful approach and uh, saw that Earth was inhabitable. So just in case, they installed highly advanced shielding, for lack of a better word, around the planet with the generator being on the moon. They could have also done this to other celestial bodies in the solar system, but the Watchers were horrified that they were trapped and would work endlessly to try and escape. They did, after all, have their slave race, but that was soon to change. Because the Nephilim chose not to serve the Watchers anymore. They were, after all, fully sentient and uh, decided to do a grand exodus from Atlantis. Somehow they avoided open conflict, though they did actually find a place to create their own grand city. The city of Lemuria. Now, I should probably clarify that Michael does not call these hybrids Nephilim in the book. Instead, he calls the Watchers Nephilim. But for the sake of continuity, I'll always refer to these hybrids as Nephilim, since that's what I've called them throughout this series. But these former slaves had all the wondrous technology and intelligence as the Watchers, and created an advanced city that would eventually rival Atlantis itself. There was not open hostility with the Atlanteans, but they did keep close tabs on their creators since they were now rivals. Back in Atlantis, the Watchers were pretty annoyed at all that, and still didn't want to do their own work. So they devised a new generation of slaves using their own DNA, but this time they'd shut off certain DNA strands in their creations to make them more obedient and limited in spiritual and mental cognition. These DNA strands that were deactivated could be reactivated, but only by certain means that they would obviously never disclose. And these new humans were not as large or strong or long-lived as the Nephilim hybrids. They were pretty much normal humans, just upgraded and indistinguishable from the untampered with tribes roaming the wilds. This creation of a new slave race really upset the Lumerians, though. The Nephilim looked over at their cousins in bondage and saw what had been done to them and how they were so asleep, not only in their cognitive function, but on the spiritual planes. And they lamented how easily manipulated they were. Kind of insulting as these are average modern humans. These are the humans around existing right now, according to this lore. Though some tribes did still wander Earth to evolve on their own, but after the destruction of Tiamat and uh, Cataclysm, this is the first Cataclysm. There's going to be others, including the Biblical Flood Cataclysm. But after the Tiamat Cataclysm, human numbers were pretty low the wild humans. In any case, the Lumerian Nephilim did not want to watch their own species be enslaved to the aliens. So some traveled to Atlantis and there was an exodus planned with nigh on the whole enslaved faction coming to Lumeria. The altered humans were very limited compared to the Nephilim, but could be taught ways to activate their unplugged DNA and wake up essentially. And somehow they did a second time, um, a second time they avoided conflict with the alien Atlanteans somehow and just took all their slaves with this loss of their second slave race really pissing them off and they changed their plans with the watchers this time to create a slave race settling on using reptoids in their third attempt the reptilian brain was easier to manipulate into utter servitude 
So they created reptile watcher hybrids. And here supposedly are David Icke's reptilian aliens and allegedly the reptilians from a lot of paranormal lore. Though reptilians are a whole beast of their own with a litany of information hard to wrap one's head around. This new slave race did work though, and the Watchers turned their eyes towards their rebellious creations with a utter fury. The Watchers were sick of their firstborn creations. Until they could find a way off Earth, there was no longer room on the planet for the both of their civilizations. So they started a war of genocide, with the goal to wipe out all the Nephilim and all of the upgraded humans to a man. However, as I said, the Lumerians were highly advanced, so the war was destructive on a level our current world has never seen. It would be like World War II times 100. And this war is allegedly recorded in the Hindu Vedas, the Mahabharata, and uh, yeah, basically Indian mythology is supposedly revolving around this war. Which is pretty fascinating because this is not the first time that I've heard this or ancient wars being super advanced. In the Mahabharata, the war is described as thousands of exploding suns in the sky. One could not tell during this war if it was day or night because <laughs> the sky was always illuminated by advanced weaponry. This is also known as the war in heaven in a lot of myths, according to the book. And though it seems like it was a ancient culture that didn't really have an understanding of what was going on, the war is depicted with the technology used in this war, I mean, is pretty... What am I trying to say? If you read the Mahabharata or some of the other ancient stuff about like old school crazy wars from the dawn of time, they seem pretty sci-fi. And in the Mahabharata, they're complete with flying machines, ancient nuclear weapons, and uh, what could be described as missiles or lasers, complete with aerial dogfights. Go check it out if you don't believe me, it's pretty crazy. Or check out the article uh, Dwarka on the website cryptochronicles.com, I talk about it in that article. But these accounts are in many ancient cultures, including Egypt and the Bible. So pretty much you name it, there's crazy stuff like this in ancient times that could be translated as advanced technology. Personally, I don't really subscribe to this, but I really enjoy thinking about it and analyzing it. But back to the book, according to the book, the war extended to Lemuria's and uh, Atlantis's colonies too, with Egypt under attack by the Watchers. Hence the Watchers that are mentioned in the Egyptian Book of the Dead that are coming off as enemies attacking the Egyptians as they pray for Osiris to liberate them, is actually these Nephilim colonies fighting off Watcher invasions, making this whole war pretty much global. And as there was no apparent faction winning on either side, the war continued to the point of utter devastation. In fact, Michael says that the devastation was so complete that it caused a pole shift of the entire planet. And this pole shift was completely unforeseen by both factions. The Watchers in Atlantis did not expect the Lumerian Nephilim to put up so much of a fight, and had let their hubris run wild from the fury they felt towards their arrogant slaves. The Nephilim, too, did not foresee the pole shift, and uh, were pretty much just trying to survive and preserve humanity. 
but in the end it was too late when it all came to a head. The pole shift caused the ice caps to melt, the polarity of the earth altered forever, and the last ice age ended from the war, leading to a global flood. Only the highest places like mountains remained above water, or deep caves carved out in earlier times were also safe. Yet the repercussions of this unforeseen pole shift meant that all the factions had no time to prepare for it. Atlantis, Lemuria, and all their advanced technology vanished under the sea, with the deluge lasting for 40 days and 40 nights just like in the Bible. Though many Nephilim were wiped out and uh, and humans were wiped out, they did manage to survive as well as some scattered tribes throughout the world. Though humanity was very low in numbers, these surviving humans would become what's known as root races in some lore. Thoth, who was a Nephilim from Atlantis, fled to Egypt with a group, while others survived landing elsewhere on the planet, including Ireland, Sumeria, China, South America, and pretty much all the locations I've talked about These, uh, where these ancient advanced civilizations are. They had their knowledge, but none of their former advanced technology. So basically built civilization from scratch with what they had to work with. And the Nephilim would split up and not stay together as a single unified faction, instead essentially getting lost in the crowd of the rest of humanity, but kinda remained in low numbers to guide us, with allegedly them still being around till this day, but they're like superhuman, so it might be hard to hide, but who knows. Things didn't look as bright as they seem though because the aliens survived too, and so did their reptilian slave race. And unlike the Nephilim and humans all splitting up to form their own factions, the Watchers stayed completely intact as an organized faction, though now they were really screwed and stuck on Earth. But remember the Watchers looked very human and similar to the Nephilim. Michael Sarian says that the aliens would go on to become the rulers of humanity from the shadows. The reptilian slaves being mostly underground in their former bases, the Watchers used to originally avoid the other aliens intent on their annihilation. But the reptilians could also be altered to appear humanoid and were and always have been loyal slaves. And concerning reptilian lore, in modern times many people in power are said to be these reptilians in disguise, and the bloodlines of the royal families across the world are all linked to these aliens. They essentially rule us in modern times according to the book. They are behind the massive boost in technological advancement, and most likely, what we'd consider the Illuminati, and whatnot, secret groups like that. Their main goal is still to get the hell off of Earth somehow, and they're relentless in this pursuit. The Lemurians too are still around, but also hidden and secretive, helping humanity from the shadows from the oppressive alien force ruling our world. Though many don't know that they are these Lemurians. If you feel like you can see through all the BS propaganda and nonsense everywhere in our modern world, but when you talk about it with other people and they just don't care or even appear to comprehend what you're saying, you just might be part Lemurian, Nephilim bloodline, or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. The Lemurians have a higher form of consciousness and spiritual awareness. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Atlantis Alien Visitation and Genetic Manipulation 
Yet again, we come across the Nephilim being the good guys, unlike their Hebrew view in the books of Enoch. And we are the Nephilim. Modern humans are Nephilim, technically. Whether the lesser slave race or the Lemurians, there is genetic manipulation in our DNA. Only the untouched tribes are fully human, and uh, who knows who those are. We're most likely all mixed together now in uh, modern times. And it's fascinating how, according to Michael Sarian, these hidden archons are still around in our world, ruling humanity from the shadows in a very parasitic way. The majority of the problems in the world and opposing factions have actually been created by these assholes. And that's because the more divided humans are, the easier it is to control them. A control that, to Michael Sarian, is absolute in modern times. They are everywhere, in all levels of authority, politics, entertainment, especially the media, you name it. Which is top tier conspiracy theory stuff, but still fascinating. Oh, and just to clear up the thingy keeping the Watchers trapped on Earth, it only works on the Watchers themselves. So it's like, uh, specifically designed to only not allow them out. So other aliens can theoretically come and go as they please, as well as humans leaving. And if this interests you, you find this fascinating, I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes, and you should check it out yourself, because it's a pretty fascinating story. But there's still a whole lot more Atlantean lore concerning the Nephilim to go over. Hello, my name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm a Loch Ness monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? 
Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. Let's get into the more mythic stuff that we'll find familiar, listener. Like Enoch the Evil and the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, which are not to be confused with the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, that the Emerald Tablet of Hermes is far older historically. But here's some quick lore on a more standard myth view, with even the Greek gods having a hand in stuff. There's not many people that know that there's lore documenting Enoch actually being a tool of the Nephilim and Watchers called Enoch the Evil. In this version, he was a collaborator and greatly rewarded by the alien influence. Also, Atlas is the ruler of Atlantis, and obviously the inspiration for the city's name, as well as the Atlantic Ocean and whatnot. Atlas was the son of a titan and actually the brother of Prometheus. He had many children, mostly daughters, with the most famous one being Calypso, who lived on the island Ogiga. The term Atlas has been used to describe a collection of maps since the 16th century, or the world in general, I guess, back when a Flemish geographer published his work in honor of the mythological titan. The name Atlantic Ocean is derived from the Sea of Atlas, an old term for the sea in general back in the days before they discovered all of Earth's landmasses. Furthermore, according to Plato, the first king of Atlantis was also named Atlas. But that version of Atlas was the son of Poseidon and a mortal woman named Cleto. The works of Eusebius and Diodorus also give an Atlantean account of Atlas. In these accounts, Atlas's father was Uranus and his mother was Gaia. His grandfather was Elium, king of Phoenicia, who lived in Bablos with his wife, Beruth. Atlas was raised by his sister, Basilia. So, as you can see, there are many, many different versions of this lore. <laughs> so, basically, same, same, um, same old, same old. I'm sure we're very used to contradicting lore now on the Nephilim. But going back to a focus on the version of the lore concerning Enoch the Evil... It is the first generation of titans that are the Watchers, with the Greek pantheon being the Nephilim, similar to the, uh, the Ben Elohim from Hebrew lore. And Enoch is constantly referred to as Enoch the Evil in this version, never just Enoch or Prophet or any of that other, his other titles and stuff. But I think the people behind it just confused the Enoch from the books of Enoch with, a. Uh, another Enoch from the Bible who was evil, I guess, from certain points of view, and who was Cain's son. Cain being the uh, brother of Abel and the first murderer. 
Anyway, I don't want to get off on Bible stories again, but they were essentially totally different dudes that are sometimes confused with one another, being the same person. Also, there's so much use of the Greek pantheon and inaccurate descriptions of places from mythology. I mean, I don't really think whoever put this stuff together really knew what they were talking about. And when I tried to look up the sources, I couldn't really find any. The guy's name is Gary Wayne, who's a, a writer, so you can go check it out if you want. He's interesting, and I'm not trying to diss on him or say that it's, like, it's all illegitimate, because a lot of people took his stuff and just rolled with it, adding their own stuff to it. So there's a lot of confusion on legitimacy and accuracy concerning this lore from legitimate sources. But basically all the gods of Greece are the Nephilim and the Titans are the Watchers. With a special focus on Neptune being the main bad guy. Also, the Anunnaki gods or Watchers have somewhat of a reptilian theme and physical traits that, uh, that a lot of conspiracy theorists concerning reptilians kind of go off of. Cool stuff, but not for the weak-minded because it might make some people paranoid. I feel like a lot of these conspiracy theory-based points of view lack a lot of knowledge to understand what they're trying to talk about, and their conspiracy-based points of view don't allow them to research the knowledge they need to really understand, which is kind of, it seems like a vicious cycle to me that uh, some are just not capable of breaking out of. Enoch the evil this, Enoch the evil that. Um... It's hard to break out of paradigms once you're just like completely stuck in one. But while we're speaking of forbidden knowledge, let's look at the Emerald Tablets. In the Emerald Tablets, Thoth distinguishes himself as an Atlantean and also separates the Watchers or Nephilim from ordinary humans or other beings. The Egyptian religion is considered by some to be the purest remnant of Atlantean spiritual beliefs, though in this version, the city of Atlantis is mostly populated by humans and the Nephilim being small in number, and the Egyptian religion kinda is believed to be portrayed accurately in the Emerald Tablets, which is true to an extent, which can be debated, but it's strange considering our knowledge on the subject is pretty recent, all things concerned. Some call it a solar cult, which can be true concerning the masses' view of the religion, but it was actually far from what it appears at face value. Using god forms as symbology for natural phenomena of nature is hard to understand with our modern perception of ancient gods. To them, they did exist on the spiritual planes, but were more forces of nature than people, personalities, or egos. Like the archetypes from some occult lore and Carl Jung, these things were more abstract and metaphysical than physical embodiments or like uh, physical beings. <laughs> I guess. It's hard for me to explain. But in Egyptian, and according to these texts, the Atlantean religion too was all about source energy, the all, somewhat similar to Gnostic beliefs, though to say that Gnostics all believe the same thing would be incredibly inaccurate. There is no unifying Gnostic religion, it's just a bunch of scattered different beliefs and viewpoints, all summed up into the same category for ease of categorization. But... um as well as in the, the Hindu with 
everything in existence just being an extension of one source, energy, or God. A lot of these ancient religions were, were actually more monotheistic than we give them credit for. So these Atlanteans were not worshipping the Nephilim as gods, or the Watchers as gods for that matter. Though in the Emerald Tablets, Thoth does reference the Anunnaki by name, as well as their lesser-known title, the Shining Ones. Which also reminds me of the sons of the Egyptian god Horus, who too are called the Shining Ones in ancient Egypt. There is no connection there though, just a cool similar title. The sons of Horus are actually kind of awesome, and protect the dead on their journey through the afterlife. They're also the four archangels, earlier prototypes of the, uh, the directions, north, south, east, west, because they perform many of the same functions the archangels of the quarters do, including the element they govern, Mikael, fire, Raphael, air, Gabriel, water, Uriel, earth. They guard the four corners of the temple, just like the sons of Horus east, south, north, west. So it's interesting how there's so many similarities in the eons of a religious evolution. It's also fascinating how the Emerald Tablets survived history in the first place. Many believe that the Emerald Tablets survived thanks to secret orders, but it's more likely that they survived thanks to the Medici of Rome, who translated it and uh, released it into the world. Now, where the Medici got the Emerald Tablets, that's another question, and if you research it, you can find a lot of answers, though none of them are credible. In the Emerald Tablets themselves, Thoth talks about confidential knowledge being imparted to only the worthy, and that unworthy people could use it for evil purposes. And in the Tablets themselves, Thoth talks about bloody sacrifices being adopted by the people, which uh, resulted in numerous incarnations of hellish beings being manifested into the world. However, there were those that did not stray from wisdom and remained true along with Thoth. He talks about the Kingdom of Shadows and the coming of the Children of Shadows, and how in the form of man they moved amongst them, alien but looking like men, but only to sight they looked as men. There were times that the illusion fell and they looked serpent-headed. Thoth talks about how they crept into politics and places of power in Atlantis, their toxic influence going unseen. They'd slay the chiefs of the kingdoms and take on their form and rule in their stead. These children of night came from another vibration, another realm. And with their serpent appearance, this is where a lot of the, I think I already said that, yeah, I already said it, but a lot of the modern reptilian lore can be found uh, as its origins in the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, because the true form and image of these children of night were reptilian. And all this stuff is very Nephilim, coinciding with many modern reptilian conspiracy theories though it's important to use symbolism and metaphor in ancient texts. We should never take anything literally, but just look at it as a meme, an idea. One of the biggest issues that we have in modern times is not being able to see things of the past through their eyes. They didn't look at things the same way we do. These dark ones or children of night are said by Thoth to have been defeated by these uh, cryptic people called masters in the past. 
and many were defeated, killed, or banished, or it's very, I don't know, it's very uh, vague. But eventually, over the eons, these entities crept back up to us from their plane through our own doing in the pursuit of power. Some researchers or people who kind of lean Gnostic call these beings Archons. And according to them, they're still among us today, if, uh, if thought is to be believed. And it is this Nephilim influence that caused the destruction of Atlantis. These beings were from a lower reality specifically stated to exist in a different vibration than our world, and could only come into manifestation through actions of these Atlanteans and uh, humans in general. With these uh, entities, with these entities corrupting also many Anunnaki gods. The knowledge and wisdom from the fall was carried on by Thoth and other elect, shepherding humanity after the reset button was hit concerning human civilization. With all of the early advanced civilizations such as Egypt, Sumeria, Gobekli Tepe, uh, um, South American ones, all basically being the survivors of Atlantis, who went into the more barbaric human cultures to teach them and uh, restart civilization. The Emerald Tablets chronicle the fall of Atlantis by Thoth and the evil that unknowingly impregnated it by the masses. And like the Gnostics, Thoth speaks of humanity's true nature as light beings, the children of light, and that our evolution and our advancement is actually uh, far less than what it should be concerning the state of things. So the Emerald Tablets are pretty fascinating and I'd go check them out if you're interested, but expect to be confused and take everything with a grain of salt. Alright, let's end this episode with the book Atlantis, The Antediluvian World. A book I really liked when I was a kid, and it blew my fucking mind. The book Atlantis and the Antediluvian World was released in 1982, in which the author openly calls the rulers of Atlantis the Nephilim. Ignatius Donnelly basically, once again, presents the... The Nephilim as a drama of good against evil. The Nephilim being a supreme evil in this version of the lore, with the Garden of Eden being basically Atlantis itself. The author states that all gods of all nations originated there, and that the mythical tales of heroes also come from Atlantis, not originating in Greece or any of their originating nations and lands as we think of them but were actually altered over time to suit individual cultures. As we've already gone over, world myth is indeed very similar. So what he says concerning this is actually plausible, though plausible does not make fact. And the author takes Homer's tale on Atlantis literally, something that's actually pretty dangerous concerning history, myth, and the past in general, and can damage credibility. A lot of mainstream people like to say that it was all just an allegory, and Homer was just using allegory and metaphor, and while that's true in a lot of cases, I'm not convinced that Homer was actually just speaking tales. And many people don't even like try to say that Homer 
existed. There's a lot of people that say Homer didn't even exist, but had actually many influences. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm open to the idea that he was a real person. I'm also open to the idea that he wasn't a real person. And it's just kind of a, a placeholder to form myth around, which is actually kind of consistent throughout history. But if you're familiar with memnonics and uh, memnonic anchors, as well as an education in linguistic anthropology like me, it's easy to see that Homer's works were actually an oral tradition before ever being written down. The anchors are obvious, with terms like clever Achilles used on repeat. Every time that one of these characters is mentioned, there's always something describing them before their name. Tons of characters have these weird repeated adjectives that don't seem to fit and seem odd when uh, being read in modern times, the way that we tell stories. Like in normal writing as we know it, this uh, might be used to introduce a character or just used once in a while, but never on repeat every single time with the same words. One of the main ways to tell that the story is an oral tradition is when these descriptions are used on repeat every time. So unless it came from an oral tradition of storytelling, you're not gonna see this. These are memnonic anchors found in all oral traditions of storytelling. And if a tale has memnonic anchors and is a oral tradition, then that means that it's probably prehistory. Like 95% chance or something like that. And if you're wondering what memnonic anchors even mean or what memnonic means, if I didn't explain that, I don't remember if I explained it or not. It's a way that you can say things and think about things that create an easier way for you to remember them in your brain. People in the past basically had the equivalent of entire books completely memorized, holding entire libraries and archives in their minds. Modern humans are kind of devolved in this aspect. I'm getting kind of off topic. So what I was trying to say or conclude was when it was finally written down, Homer's tales, when it was all finally written down, they probably slapped Homer on it to make it look like it was written by someone, which in that time would give it more credibility. But in the antediluvian world book, the author states that the tales of Homer are far older than classical Greece something I'm inclined to believe as well concerning all the memnonic anchors. Though not proven, don't get me wrong. It's just as reasonable to think that Homer was an actual person and these are actual historical events. Unique to Greece, I mean. But some key points in the book is that the true antediluvian world was the Garden of Eden, the Gardens of Hesperides, the Elysian Fields, the Gardens of Alcinos, the Mesomphalos, the Olympos, the Asgardian traditions are representing a universal memory that we have in our collective unconscious of a, a great land where early mankind dwelt for ages in peace and happiness. And that the gods and goddesses of the ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Hindus, the Sumerians, and the Scandinavians were simply the kings, queens, and heroes of Atlantis and that the acts attributed to them in mythology are confused, a uh, confused recollection of real historical events concerning the Nephilim. This book is actually pretty legit, and like I said, I've loved it for decades, and it's uh, objective with a lot of good points. Doesn't mean it's right. 
but it is one of the less opinion-based compilations of research and uh, covers a vast amounts of real-world knowledge. And the fact that the book is pretty old, not too old, but uh, contains much knowledge relevant to the modern world, I find very interesting. And after reading this book, you might just become a believer in Atlantis. Or, I mean, what I should say is you be a believer in the idea of Atlantis, at least. One thing I learned as I grew older is you can't really take anything as objective fact concerning myth and things beyond our grasp in the current world concerning history. So, though it's a fascinating book, you gotta take it with a grain of salt like you do concerning all lore on these unexplained mysteries. What's the old saying? Probably gonna get it wrong. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you read. And only believe half of what you see. for today's episode in the next episode on the nephilim we're gonna go into king nimrod and algernon herbert's claims that atlantis was the residence of the nephilim and i mentioned the gnostics many times in this series so far and i've gotten some emails asking me to explain them because i guess a lot of people have no idea who the gnostics were so i'll do a quick overview of the gnostics as well in next episode and hopefully we can get into the more Sum Sumerian lore of the actual myth from the Sumerian tablets. Not necessarily the Zachariah Sitchin stuff yet, because he has his own like entire legacy surrounding his translations of the tablets, but more so just like the more mainstream version of the translation of the tablets. I hope to get into that by the end, or at least the last quarter of the next episode, and maybe just like sum up some quick real-world applications that we might have for Atlantis and the Nephilim in uh, the mainstream. But in any case, don't worry, the Nephilim series is far from over. I still have at least another four or five episodes of research. And as always, please leave a good review wherever you do listen to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, basically all podcast hubs, if you'd like completely ad-free and uh, uncensored, unmodified versions that are actually early as well of the podcast, then go ahead and join the Cryptic Chronicles vault. The Chronicles vault, it's at crypticchronicles.com on the top bar. It's just Patreon. Becoming a patron will unlock a bunch of cool stuff. Depending on what you pledge to, you can have an entire like episode dedicated to you. Come on the show. A uh, bunch of stuff. Go check it out. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Of course, there's Facebook. we got a pretty big Facebook group, but uh, follow us elsewhere, Tumblr, Twitter. I don't really go on Twitter. Don't really seem to have many Twitter followers, but if I did, I would go on it more. I'm honestly just not really a social media person anymore, but I will check it regularly just to uh, keep in touch with you guys. 
and also support alternative tech. So go to all of the new places like, uh, can't really think of them right now. Sorry, I'm kind of tired, but I think it's important that we support alternative tech. In saying that, you should also not only follow me on YouTube, but also on Rumble and BitChute and uh, DTube, Daily Motion, all the alternative tech sites, because we really do have to support alternative tech because the global, just like global big tech corporations have such an iron grip on freedom of speech and freedom of thought that in order to fight that kind of tyranny, we really have to spread out what we, what we, uh, you know, what we use in our media. We can't just have like the big three or four, otherwise it'll be Let's just say it's not going to be good in the future when everything's all just censored and there's only an echo chamber. So make sure you support alternative tech if you want a future of freedom. And as always, thank you to my patrons, Angie Allen, Paul, Ashley, Stephanie Wilkie, Leon Watson, Linda Gonzalez, Megan Crosswell, and everyone else who supports the show. If you have any ideas or advice, criticism of any kind then please hit me up on social media or just email me cryptic chronicles podcast at gmail.com thank you for listening to cryptic chronicles and as the philosopher emperor one of the greatest philosophers minds and stoics of history once said the things you think about determine the quality of your mind your soul takes on the color of your thoughts Bada bing bada boom, bada bing bada boom.